lot of you on the phones trying to help me out here to help the people out there. Stay with us. We're your lighthouse gang in this moment of darkness. Radio host Garland Robinette was on the air more or less constantly after Katrina, broadcasting from a studio the size of a broom closet in Baton Rouge. Being on the air so much meant Garland got more than his fair share of call-ins, calls from victims of the flood, from evacuees looking for family members, even the occasional foreigner hoping for updates. It was all pretty bizarre for an evening talk show. And then on Thursday, a few days after the storm, things got even more bizarre. My answer to that today is BS. Where is the beef? Garland got a call from the mayor, Ray Nagin. Goddamn ships that are coming, I don't see them. What did you say to the president of the United States and what did he say to you? I basically told him we had an incredible uh, crisis here and that his flying over in Air Force One does not do it justice. And the call was all over the place. Sometimes, Negan seemed furious. And they don't have a clue what's going on down here. They flew down here one time, two days after the doggone event was over, with TV cameras, AP reporters, all kind of goddamn, excuse my French, everybody in America. But I am pissed. At other points in the call, he was on the brink of tears. I have no idea what they're doing, but uh, I will tell you this. You know, God is looking down on all this. And if they are not doing everything in their power to save people, they are going to pay the price. Because every Nagin was under a lot of pressure. He hadn't slept. He also hadn't come down much from the 27th floor of the Hyatt. The police department was crumbling. The police chief and media were spreading stories of depravity. Even the mayor believes some truly wild shit. People don't want to talk about this, but I'm going to talk about it. You had drug addicts that are now walking around this city looking for a fix. And that's the reason why they were breaking in hospitals and drugstores. The picture Nagin painted was grim. And they they probably found guns. It almost didn't matter what was true or not. Drug addicts that are wreaking havoc. And we don't have the manpower to adequately deal with it. We can only target certain sections of the city and, and form a perimeter around them and hope to God that we're not overrun. The mayor and other officials were desperate for somebody to take charge, somebody to get the chaos under control, a hero to save the day. And on Thursday, Nagin finally got what he asked for. Now, I will tell you this, and I give the president uh, some credit on this. He sent one John Wayne dude down here that can get some stuff done. And his name is General Honore. And he came off the doggone chopper, and he started cussing, and people started moving. For a week, the city was described as under siege. Baghdad in America, more or less. Officials were calling for a military response. They got one. Just not quite the one they expected. I love fucking problems like this. I thrive on shit like this. Part 5. Exodus. There's a really tempting superhero origin way to start the story of Lieutenant General Russell Honore. He was raised on a farm in Lakeland, Louisiana. 
he grew up near the levees on the mighty Mississippi River. And as fate would have it, he was born just before a hurricane. I don't think that had got Jack to do with nothing. But I grew up listening to my grandfather and old men sitting on the porch before we had TV telling stories. And they would get emotional about stories about the flood of 1912 and 1927 and 1936 because our people were treated very bad during those floods. The history of floods in Louisiana is a history of the honorees. They'd been through the great Mississippi flood in 1927. During that one, water rose all up and down the river. A lot of black farmers were flooded off their land. In New Orleans, the business community worried that the French Quarter was gonna flood. So they agreed on a plan to divert the water. Just downriver from the city, they blew up a levee. They flooded thousands of poor folks out of their homes. The French Quarter stayed high and dry. The honorees lost their land, too. The government took it to create a spillway to stop future floods. So we went from landowners to renters. And we did not survive Jim Crowell not being landowners, but we survived. Honore went to segregated schools. He raised cows for segregated 4-H shows. His church, that was segregated too. The first time he experienced any kind of real racial integration in his life was when he joined the ROTC. It really appeared that people didn't matter what color you were. It's can you run as fast as and long as the Army wanted you to? Could you shoot? Could you participate as a part of a team? Were you appreciative of other people's contributions? And uh, that was a true learning experience, and it made me reflect on, yeah, I, I want to definitely be in the Army. He did join the Army. He rose up the ranks for 35 years. I was a lieutenant general, a uh, three-star general, promoted to that position to command 1st United States Army. And I was the 33rd commander of uh, First Army in Atlanta when Katrina hit. The Tuesday after Katrina, Honore and his staff had to drive to Camp Shelby, Mississippi to start relief efforts. His predecessor, the 32nd commander of First Army, used to ride around in a green Dodge van. But Honore had upgraded the fleet to Chevy Suburbans, stretch models. They were packed with TVs and satellite radios. In events of shit happened, I'm not going to show up in a soccer mom car. <laughs> you know, I'm not riding that shit. Optics are kind of a big thing for Honore. He thinks an Army general should look the part, and he still does. He still wears his Army baseball caps and chugs black coffee. He smoked like four whole cigars in one interview alone, and he still drives a giant SUV. Did you ever see Robert E. Lee on a, on a piss-looking horse or... A Long Street, uh, you know what I mean? A George Patton on a piss-looking horse, riding in that shit. You, you got to somehow look the part. So after Katrina, he and his team drove those manly SUVs right into the path of devastation. Lights were out. No lights. We drove from Birmingham to Jackson. No lights. We found one gas station as we were going in Birmingham, and we stopped to fill up with fuel. Number one rule in the Army. Fill up every time you can. Don't go below a half a tank. 
Shortly after he got to Camp Shelby, he got word from his superiors. The White House had created Joint Task Force Katrina and put him in charge of units in Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, and Louisiana. New Orleans was his responsibility now. He got in a helicopter and flew to the Superdome from Mississippi. And we do a whip around the Superdome, and I've never come in on such a a fast landing, but they're trained to land on ships in small spaces. And as they brought that Black Hawk down, I mean, they dropped that sound, bitch. There was a lot of work to do. Many people were still stranded in flooded buildings across the city. Thousands of people had been in a Superdome for days. Thousands were in the convention center with no help. Buses FEMA had promised to evacuate people hadn't arrived. Elderly and sick people needed airlifts to hospitals. And when I asked the mayor, what's the priority? He said, General, we got to evacuate the city. So we had that meeting. I said, okay, we need buses. FEMA guy, where's the buses? We don't know. We we They don't contract. We think they're on the way. But the people in New Orleans could not talk to people in Baton Rouge, 72 miles away. So I gave the mayor a satellite phone. So wait, they, they didn't have sat phones until you got there? No. He didn't have one. Mm-hmm. There was one at the Superdome. But I think there were a lot of people around there that didn't even know that was there. After checking in with the mayor, Honoré loaded into his helicopter and whipped out to Baton Rouge. The governor was there, and so was Michael Brown, the FEMA director. So Michael Brown had found out I was there, and he sent word for me to come over and see him. So I walked in, he said, this is your desk right next to me. I said, uh, sir, you will never see me sitting at that fucking desk. He said, no, I need you right next to me so we can coordinate this. I said, yeah, but the people in the water in New Orleans, I'm headed back to New Orleans. As a National Guard general put it today, the cavalry has arrived. It is the federal assistance that New Orleans has literally been begging for. National Guard troops moved When he got back to New Orleans, he had his hands full with logistics, making sure food and water got delivered, finding buses, finding fuel for airplanes. And he had another big problem, the chief of police, Eddie Compass. I get a call. It's right before dark. The police chief had gone on television and said there were snipers. The White House chief of staff called my phone number, said, hey, the boss want to know if there's snipers in New Orleans because if snipers are there, we're going to send federal troops in the night. Honore realized he had to get in front of this. He had a little talk with Compass. I said, that's a significant word to say snipers. I said, oh, by the way, did they hit you? Well, no. Did they hit the helicopter? No. Well, they probably one fucking sniper, were they? Honore had a simpler explanation for why people might be shooting off guns. I said, in a lot of cases, people, they've watched too much television, and they think if they're shooting in the air, the helicopter here, I mean, come get them. Or mark their position. And out of all the stories, and I mean, I've had helicopter pilots, you run into them all over the place. They were shooting at us. We have yet to have one helicopter with a bullet hole in it. He tried to tell Compass that these rumors could set off a dangerous chain of events. Snipers firing at American troops on American soil, that could give the government the pretext to treat New Orleans like a war zone. You know, we're going to snipers, now we're going to a case of civil unrest. And the president can assume control of all of this area now. 
because we've lost civil control. Governor Blanco was saying the National Guard would shoot to kill. The White House was offering special ops troops to provide order. Bush was considering invoking the Insurrection Act, which would federalize the response entirely. No president had done that since his father did during the L.A. riots in 1992. The mayor was asking for martial law, and some officers thought it was actually in place. We were pretty dangerously close to a situation where armed forces units would shoot civilians for the first time since the Kent State Massacre in 1970. And all that talk about snipers, it almost did the job. Where you get this shit snipers from, Chief? Or said just, maybe I used the wrong word. I asked Compass about this when I talked to him. He said that's exactly how it happened. He was upset, though, because he said sniper upsets people. It, it, it makes people worry, you know, and I guess I shouldn't have used that word. I said, no shit, you use the wrong word. I'm sorry. I mean, I can't take it back. So I called back down to the governor's office and said, hey, hey tell the governor, don't tell the troops to shoot to kill. I said, don't ever tell law enforcement to shoot to kill your own people. In the days after he first landed at the Superdome, the rumors and misinformation had done their work. Troops pointed their weapons at flood survivors. The NOPD had shot at least 10 people in the week after Katrina. They ambushed two families on the Danziger Bridge. Gretna police had blocked the bridge to stop evacuees coming from the convention center. Honoree saw rumors as one of his biggest obstacles. This thing had been building about looting and about... The city's out of control of the bullshit. You got a bunch of reporters still pissing New York beer, just showing up. They ain't corroborating shit. Somebody's walked down the street and said, hey, what happened to you last night? Well, I saw five people get raped at the convention center. They don't go ask the police if they know anybody. They don't go ask and see anybody by name. Then somebody's going straight to national television. There were five people got to talk to Charles here. And Charles said five people got to... Charles, you got it? No, I ain't got nothing else to say. But that's not a corroboration of a story. There was another rumor going around that week. Lots of people he rescued were convinced that the levees in the Lower Ninth Ward had been blown up on purpose. They said they heard the explosion. The uh, first day I had rumors on Thursday that they were blowing the levees. Honoree had grown up in Lakeland, Louisiana listening to old men telling stories about floods. He figured he knew where that idea came from. Somebody's grandfather told him notes about back in 27 when they blew the levees <laughs> to save New Orleans. And they're going to blow the levees where the black people live. Well, you know what? That's what happened in the night ward. But a barge hit a damn concrete wall there, and that's how it started. A barge did hit the industrial canal levee. It was huge came right over the wall and into the Lower Ninth Ward. Maybe that's what people heard. So you go on and on that there's nobody out there blowing levees. I'm dealing with that. This is rumors. In some ways, Honoré really was a John Wayne dude people were looking for. He's loud. He chews people out and curses a lot. He blew past all the red tape and just steamrolled past anything in his way. He took over, but not really in the way some people thought he would. All of these National Guard troops are armed. They all have weapons. 
but General Honoré is going through and telling all of them to put their weapons point down. He very specifically has said, literally, he does not want this to look like Iraq. Instead of shooting looters, he told soldiers to put their guns down. Instead of freaking out about snipers and gangs, he held daily press conferences to dispel rumors. Instead of responding to Katrina like it was a war zone, he responded like it was a humanitarian crisis. We are issuing water for bottles and individual packets of food. And uh, if you ever had 20,000 people come to supper, you know what I'm talking about. Honoré understood that his job wasn't about establishing control over the victims of Katrina. It was about establishing control over officials and media, controlling the narrative. It all came into view on Friday when he first went to the convention center. The police told Honoré that it was dangerous. Say bullshit. So I got in my vehicle with my boys. We drove down there, and the people said, hey, that's a general. And uh, one of them said, that guy's name is Honoré. I know some honorees right here in New Orleans. So they were yelling, hey, bro, you here to get it? I said, got it. When I saw the National Guard that arrived today, I felt like once again I was a part of America because I really felt like my country had deserted me until then. Honoré's visit would help kickstart efforts to bring food and water to people at the convention center. They began evacuating on Saturday and were all out by Sunday. Their week of hell was over. Honoré stayed behind to rescue stragglers and help get the city up and running again. It takes a little time to do difficult shit. It takes a little longer to do fucking impossible. But we're going to do this shit. I mean, we did D-Day. We did Iwo Jima. This is the fucking army. We know how to do tough shit. But you got to get the logistics set to get it done. You with me? In the superhero version of this story, this is the end. The guy born on the eve of a hurricane had rescued the city. New Orleans had its savior. The black John Wayne dude had come off the chopper, started cussing, and got shit done. People ask me, so what do you think about being compared to a black John Wayne? But I say, well, John Wayne was an actor. He could reshoot his fucking scenes. This is real. You know what I mean? Honoré's job, as well as he'd done it, was essentially damage control. He'd gotten there days after the storm. The rumors and misinformation that he fought had already claimed lives. People died waiting for help. Some people lost faith in the government. He helped get folks loaded up on airplanes, but he couldn't do much to help them after that. They were joining what was probably the largest migration of people in the U.S. since the Great Depression. It would change New Orleans, and it would change the country. If the 24-hour news cycle leaves you feeling like you know everything but understand nothing, check out the podcast Deep Background. It's from Pushkin Industries, and it's hosted by Harvard Law School professor Noah Feldman. Noah recently made news himself as one of the four legal scholars chosen to testify at the impeachment hearings. In each episode of Deep Background, Noah interviews an expert or policymaker to explore the historical, scientific, legal, and cultural context behind the headlines. You can find Deep Background on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Oh. 
Thank you. Thousands and thousands of New Orleanians streaming westward from the city. These are streaming to cities and towns. 3,000 people a day heading to Texas, Arkansas Florida, will take 20,000 people. And they are quickly filling up. I'm not going back to New Orleans. I don't want to go back to New Orleans. The city of Philadelphia has put aside a million dollars to take in 1,000 They now join one of America's greatest population shifts since the Great Depression. The South are asking for help and offering it. Alice Kraft Kearney and her family joined that great migration. A week after the levees broke, they finally got picked up from her brother's three-story house in the Lower Ninth Ward. We had to board this airplane. When we asked the question, where are we going, we were told, we don't know. Which I found was strange because I'm not a pilot, but I know you have to file a flight plan. And so they would not tell us where we were being taken to. It wasn't until the plane landed that they realized that they were over a thousand miles away in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Governor Richardson was right there to greet us. The um, mayor from Albuquerque was there to greet us when the plane landed. Red Cross volunteers gave Alice's family a voucher for a hotel. After spending a long time without running water and in the dark, they had air conditioning, hot showers, and electricity. But still, when Alice watched TV, she couldn't help but feel like Katrina was still with her. These are, remember, refugees. Refugees are modern-day nomads. Refugees in the United States of America. Think of it. It's a word you'll be hearing, I bet, for years. We've just gotten a very... I could not believe that we were being referred to as refugees in our own country. Anyway. Lots of evacuees said they were never going back to New Orleans. Either they were fed up or they just wanted to escape Katrina. But not Alice. Absolutely, I was coming back. I had something to come back to. I had a home, and I, and I, I definitely wanted to get back to my home. Evacuees were starting to pop up all over the country. The stolen city bus had taken Leanne Williams and her family a couple hours away to Lafayette, Louisiana. They'd stayed there for a few days, along with thousands of other evacuees. But one of Leanne's aunts lived over in a town called McGee, Mississippi. The middle of nowhere. You have to cut off into the woods to get to her house. Not a street, a road. Rocks. McGee, Mississippi is something like the exact opposite of New Orleans. It's a town on the highway between Jackson and Hattiesburg. One of those places with hotels fast food spots, and a Piggly Wiggly, and not a whole lot more. Leanne was 14. She'd never lived outside of New Orleans in her life. It had only been a couple weeks since she was buying new uniforms and Jordans to start a new fancy high school. She even still had her hair done up for the first day. My mom registered me at McGee High. People thought I talked funny because of my accent. I thought they talked funny. They made fun of my braids because we, that's how we wear our hair in New Orleans, but that's not how they wear in Mississippi. She went to class with one of her cousins. She tried to fit in, like any normal schoolgirl. But things just weren't normal. A teacher asked him to talk about the disaster. She was like, do you want to just stand in front of the class and tell us about yourself because we heard about what happened. And my cousin stood in front of the class and she told about herself. I broke down crying. They brought me to the counselor. 
spoke to the counselor the next period, the same thing. I cried and I cried. And my cousin talked, she was like, Leanne, it's going to be okay. You just got to stop crying. I just kept crying. Why do you think you were crying? Because I wanted to go home. I didn't want to be there. And then we watching those out here. It would take New Orleans about five to ten years to be back what it was. And the water's still in the city. And it's taking a long time to pump it out. And I'm hearing my mom and them discuss this. And I'm just saying I'm never going to be back home. Five to ten years, I'll be an adult. I don't want to go home five, ten years. I'm going to go home now. My mom was like, where are we going to go? How are we going to go home? You can't get in the city. They're not letting us in the city. You can't go to your house no more. There is no home no more. Her family did their best to find somewhere to make a new life. A couple months after they got to McGee, Leanne's parents took her to Scottsdale, Arizona. A church there was helping families get back on their feet. Leanne actually liked it in Scottsdale. The food was good. Her family had a pool. She even made some new friends. But she was still determined to go back home. Some volunteers at the church offered to buy her new clothes, and she decided she wanted a winter jacket. And it was like, I don't think you're going to need that out here because it don't get that cool out here. And I just was persistent. I wanted that coat. And it was like, oh, well, you can just wear it. It's like 60 degrees in the morning, but in the um, evening it's hot. Not going to need it. But I'm thinking, I'm going to need it for where I'm going because I'm going back home. So I'm just going to get this jacket. <laughs> I'm going to need it sooner or later because we're just going to be here just temporarily anyway. So I got the jacket. And did you wear it? Yeah, I wore that jacket to school, boy. It was cold when I got up. See, when I got out of my last period, I was burning up. It was like she left her life on pause back in New Orleans. Maybe if she could just get back, things would pick up right where they left off. Maybe she could get back to her high school, play basketball, hang out with her crush Fonzo. But reality began to set in one day when she was finally able to track Fonzo down. He had made his way back to New Orleans. She gave him a call. I just called the house phone and it rang and somebody answered it. And I asked to speak to him and his mom hollered for him to get the phone. But as soon as she started talking, she could hear a lot of people in the background. Fondo seemed distracted, like he was busy. And he just didn't want to talk. That hurted my feelings. It really did. And then Fondo hung up. And the phone went, and I never spoke with him again. in New Orleans, anywhere around the world, everybody's eyes light up. Back in that you week after Katrina, Mayor Ray Nagin was on the radio with Garland Robinette. They talked about General Honoré and the slow government response. And Nagin defended the city that he loved. Now get off your asses and let's do something. And let's fix the biggest goddamn crisis in the history of this country. And I'll say it right now, 
you're the only politician that's called and called for arms like this. The two men weren't just angry or overwhelmed or frustrated. With unknown numbers of dead and so many people evacuating, they were also grieving. So, Garland, I am just, I'm at the point now where it don't matter. People are dying. They don't have homes. They don't have jobs. The city of New Orleans will never be the same. And it's time. He was right. The city of New Orleans would never be the same. The lives that had been lost couldn't just be restored. The lives like Leanne's that had been broken and changed couldn't just be fixed. And as the weeks became months, as McGee became Scottsdale, became Houston, there were new questions hanging over the city of New Orleans. How would the city be rebuilt? Who was to blame? And who would get to come back? Who wouldn't? People would look for answers in investigations, in hearings and trials, council meetings and conspiracy theories. They would work to find meaning in the disaster. They would work to figure out what to say. We're both pretty speechless here. Yeah, I don't know what to say. Uh, I gotta go. Okay. Uh, keep, keep in touch. Keep in touch. Okay. Can we take a break? Roseanne. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs>